we have more in common with other people of faith than we have that divides us. The question about the nature of God and Jesus Christ is time old. Are they one in body or one in purpose? And where does the Holy Ghost fit in? By 325 AD, a number of ideas about this had emerged in the early Christian church, which led Roman Emperor Constantine to convene a council in the city of Nicaea to attain theological consensus. Since then, the Nicene Creed is often relied upon as the basis for modern Christian thinking, and it's often a point of division between members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and other Christians. Keith Thompson, Professor and Associate Dean at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney, has researched this in depth. In this episode, he joins me to discuss his recent book, Trinity and Monotheism, which traces the evolution of the Trinity doctrine. As someone who frequently works with people of other faiths, Professor Thompson suggests that just like Constantine, who was willing to accommodate a number of differences in Christian belief, perhaps we need not be so divided when it comes to this doctrine. Professor Keith Thompson has enjoyed a diverse legal career, working privately in Auckland for 11 years before being appointed as International Legal Counsel for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Professor Thompson has also served as a Bishop, Stake President, Mission President and the Australian Interfaith Director. Most recently, Professor Thompson has been involved with an interfaith think tank called CIROS, which conducts research into the positive contributions that religious institutions make to Australian society. Today, Professor Thompson is joining the podcast from lockdown in Sydney. Welcome, Professor. How is lockdown treating you? I love lockdown. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure people won't like me saying that, but I get to work from home. I spend a lot of time with my wife and I look out at the Three Sisters in the Blue Mountains from my office window every day. <laughs> Life could be a lot worse. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, as an avid history buff and almost, almost law graduate, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. I, I really find your professional and academic experience as well as your interfaith engagements fascinating, and I'm looking forward to hearing your insights. So how about we start out with a bit of who you are? You were born in New Zealand, right? How long have you been a member of the church? My parents joined the church when I was six years old. We lived and I was born in Dunedin. They got baptized in an above-ground swimming pool. I was baptized then when I was eight on my birthday. A couple of sister missionaries gave me a copy of the Book of Mormon. I didn't read it for the first time till I was 14, but then I read it a few times before I went on my mission. So I was, I was not going to go on a mission. And I certainly wasn't going to go till I'd finished my law degree, but in fact, I broke it halfway through and went as soon as I was able. <laughs> you were cracked. <laughs> I was. Brilliant. So you went on a mission after that, and then you returned and finished your law degree. You told me previously that you wanted to transition into academia at the end of your career, and you're now a professor at the Notre Dame School of Law. It must be great to be in a role that, that requires you to research and I know one interest for you is the intersection of, of law and religion, and you've published extensively in this area. Before we get to some of your actual works, part of your research has led you to be involved with a few more organizations other than the just the uni, and one of that is the interfaith think tank called CIROS, the study of the economic impact of religion on society. How long have you been involved with this board? I was asked 
by the LDS church to assume the role of one of my friends who had been called on a mission. I think that was probably 2012, 13, when that transition happened. And what had happened is that a few of the mainstream churches, the larger churches in Australia, had been surprised to learn that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that donations that our members make to the church can get them a tax deduction. And so there were some inquiries that come through about that since there were threats and suggestions from, if I can put it, rationalist and atheist organizations who were saying churches shouldn't be entitled to tax deductions. And a think tank kind of grew out of dialogue between a, a few different churches, but it was discovered that a Pennsylvania a professor named Ram Kanan had done a lot of work to try and show government and treasury kind of people that they shouldn't discourage or knock tax exemptions for churches on the head in the US because churches actually save the government from an awful lot of money. They have a whole willing, a whole big cadre of volunteers who do work for love and they don't charge. And if government takes away uh, the incentives that they got in that country, then government is going to have to pay for it themselves and it will cost them more. And this think tank, as it was beginning, it asked Professor Kanan what fields of study in which churches generally, and we're not just talking about Christian churches, all of the mainstream faiths, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and many more, they all do good things. So he, he went through in answer to that request and wrote a position paper that explained all of the areas of civil society where churches, quote, save the government money. And at that point, uh, with a little bit of funding from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, Deloitte Access Economics, they were asked by this sort of informal body to recommend what research could be done in Australia that would begin the process that mm -hmm. Professor Kananan in the US had taken to such a high level. And they wrote a paper and suggested we research donation and volunteering behaviour and how religion affects our donation and volunteering behaviour. Well, one thing led to another. I was appointed to be the Secretary Managing Director. We commissioned a survey of just over 8,000 representative people in Australia about their demographic behaviour, how often they attend church as children, as adults, what what they do in the way of volunteering and we were I was I went to have a look on the website and was just really fascinated to learn that it said that 23% of religious adults are more likely to donate than their non-religious peers and that that actually amounts to half a billion dollars a year for the Australian government but if the government were to try and replace that philanthropy it would cost them a lot more to get that amount You've you've read it exactly the interesting thing about that was Deloitte limited their analysis to the 3% of people who become religious as adults, who, who had no religion in their lives before that time. So we might say the converts who were probably going to be more energetic and enthusiastic than people who'd been lifelong members. But Deloitte's also limited their survey to 
what they give outside of their churches and families. So the, the giving. Oh, so is, the amount would actually be a lot higher then. Well, that's and that's correct. And we've now used the same data to do an analysis of of the non-religious giving behaviour of Australians who were religious all their lives, which brings in a lot more people. And the numbers, well, I can give you a sneak preview, it's now somewhere between 9 and $20 billion a year that it saves. Oh, wow. But that's hot off the press, Maddie. Yeah. Oh, exciting. Inside news. Yeah. <laughs> so your work on this board, you're working with representatives from most of the major religious organizations in Australia, like you said, not just uh, Christian denominations. The overall overarching mission of CRS is it to really calculate the value that religion plays in Australia and, and communicate that effectively to the government? Our interest is we don't want government deciding that religion isn't good for society ever, which some people are inclined to say. And maybe the child sexual abuse crisis, which has just really, it's been a, a scourge to many of the Christian faiths, but not just the Christian faiths. It has seen, I think it's been a contributor to some people losing their faith. But if we focus on the really small percentage of religious people who have done those horrendous things, we forget about all the wonderful people that do many, many wonderful things. If we didn't have religious altruism in society, we wouldn't have an aged care sector in Australia. Because that's spearheaded by predominantly the Anglican, or at least in New South Wales, there's a lot of Anglican there's institutions. Anglicare is huge, but all mm. of the major Christian churches have, I mean, Baptist health care is huge. When I visit with my Islamic friends, I was toured through their brand new aged care facility adjacent to the mosque at uh, at Auburn. It's huge and it's beautiful and they are absolutely focused, as are the Christian people, on looking after their old people and, and not just their old people, people from outside of their faith. I mean, there's a lot of altruism there that's not just taking care of our own, which, and that's one of the things well, the, the CIROS research has not, to date, it hasn't looked at religious giving. It's looked at the entirely independent, non-religious giving of people in society and said... You mean we pay tithing. It's not looking at tithing. It's well, looking at extra contributions to... That's right. Tithing is kind of selfish and if you look at... The yeah, it's just to our church, right? And, and so what we're looking at is what do... If, if we take Latter-day Saints as an example, what do Latter-day Saints do for others in their community? And if you didn't have religious faith, what would you do for others in their community? And compare that religious person with that non-religious person. Does religious teaching make any difference that can't be explained as selfishness? And that's what Ceros has been doing. The real fun of that for me has been all the extra friends that I've made across the religious spectrum. Um, two, two months ago, I was invited because the Baha'i folk are my friends to the centenary of their establishment in Australia across at the, um, at the Terry Hills Temple. And, and I've been invited by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I've sat in a number of meetings with them when they had some legal issues that they wanted to discuss. Some of my LDS friends think that my friendship with some Scientologists is untoward. Um, it's easy to 
to beat up on people that we don't understand when they opened their head office in Chatswood three years ago. David Bennett QC, who used to be the Solicitor General of Australia, he and I were invited to go and speak about religious freedom at their opening. I considered that was a great honour as well. I just like the fact that we have more in common with other people of faith than we have that divides us. And so Seros has given me a great opportunity to build bridges of understanding into many different faiths and with many different individuals. Yeah, wonderful. That's a good segue, actually, because I wanted to talk a little bit about a recent book that you published in 2019. Obviously, with all the work that you're doing, you get the opportunity to collaborate with people who have different ideas, different um, theologies, and I guess in some circles, especially within different Christian denominations, there can be some hotly contested theological differences, such as you know, the doctrine of the Trinity. Your recent book, it's called Trinity and Monotheism. It traces this history of some of these differing doctrines from early Christianity with the Nicene Creed to our current day. And and you kind of just touched on it just now that ultimately, we, yes, we have some of these differences, but we have a lot more in common than we think. And there's this great quote that um, I think is maybe a good starting point for our discussion today is you ultimately contend at the end of your book that the differences between Christians who claim allegiance to the Nicene Creed and, and the Christians who don't are not as large as they may appear. So to begin, I'd love to go on a bit of a history lesson. Could you take us back to, let's say, you know, the first, second century after Christ's death, what were the early Christians thinking at the time about the nature of God, about uh, Jesus Christ, and when did the doctrine of the Trinity first emerge? Okay, well, I think in my book I've done something a little bit innovative in that space. And and in and, and the book I go back a bit further than that and trace the fact that ancient Jews before the 5th century BC, certainly believed in a divine council with God, 70 sons at least, um, who were glorious beings and then um, angels and then men and tears. But by the time the Jews came back from their Babylonian captivity, they have become monotheistic as a kind of self-protection mechanism. And by the time Christ is on earth, they are monotheistic with bells on. You mean they only worshipped one God? They only worship one God. And and if I'm really blunt about it, they don't know whether they call that God El, Elohim, or Yahweh, and they don't say the name Yahweh. Now, we distinguish between the Father God, Elohim, or El, and Yahweh, Jehovah, but... He's one for them, and they're not sure. It's just one God, and it's just different names for the one being. But what happens when the post-Christ apostles and disciples build a church is they begin it, before Paul's ministry in particular, among Jews. And they're just saying Jesus was the Messiah that we've been looking for. He's the the messenger of God, if you will, to use a slightly almost Islamic phrase, but he is the one. And they start having some success, but they're only proselyting to Jews. And so all the mainstream Jews think of the Christians as apostate Jews. And they're trying to ping them and make them uncomfortable and trying 
I think there was probably some altruism there, some trying to bring them back. But what's really going on is the Jews are looking for ways to expose how misguided these apostates are. And so they come up with the phrase, you are polytheists. You believe in more than one God. You believe that Meaning God, they're worshipping Jesus Christ and God the God Father. God. So they have two gods, and therefore you're no better than the Greeks and the Romans who have lots and lots of gods. You're just the same. And I think it's fair to say that that was painful to the early Christians, and they worked on answering that. And finally, they come up with this idea of the unity between God and Jesus Christ being such that they are basically one and the same. The Trinity, I say in my book, was the informed and developed intellectual Christian response to Jewish criticism. Now, I've talked... The the pressure that they were receiving from... Yeah. And, And it's interesting. I mean, Christianity, of course, as we all know from history became much, much more successful than Judaism. We, we don't have to use that as a defense mechanism against Jewish challenges, theological criticism anymore, but I think that's where it began. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So your conclusion is that the Trinity doctrine emerged as a way for the early Christians to prove that they were still monotheists. In your book, you trace the evolution of this doctrine as it arose prior to the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 AD. Now, there are a number of prolific Christian writers who contributed theological teachings in those first hundred years after Christ's death. I suppose trying to make sense of who God and Jesus Christ really were. You know, you mentioned Theophilus and Clement of Alexandria. But in particular, you discuss Tertullian, who is credited as the source of the doctrine that became foundational for Christianity at Nicaea. He wrote throughout the 2nd and the 3rd century, and you point out how he attempted to explain that the Father and the Son are one, that they are of the same substance. Can you tell me a little bit more about his teachings? If I try and reduce Tertullian to a nutshell, and he's... He is one of the core points on this theology that a lot of Christianity traces its Trinitarian theology to. But I'm kind of convinced that what actually happened in his expression, he's trying to say, we we might use the modern analogy of a board of directors of of a public company. They are united in their purpose of making a profit for their shareholders. He's almost doing the same thing and saying, A lot of people join together for a common purpose. They may do it in the interest of altruism. They may do it in the interest of profit, partnerships, and so forth. Jesus Christ and God. And it's interesting, the the Nicene Creed doesn't mention the Holy Ghost. So it's only two and one, really, at that point. They're so joined together, and it's almost as if if they're the same, they have the same substance. They're so united, and he's he's really grasping to find an explanation so that common people can understand how ad item, how of one mind God and Jesus Christ are. But he's not, in my view, ever saying they are the same person. And, in fact, there are some things in his words that make it very clear that he sees them as separate. Okay, so let's fast forward to the council then, which was attended by a number of prominent bishops and priests, deacons from both the Eastern and the Western churches. 
Who spearheaded the Nicene Creed and then what did they ultimately conclude? There was a lot of fussing went on in early Christianity about how joined they were. It's an argument in one of the eastern um, dioceses that then splits the empire, uh, the the religious empire. And at this point in time, Constantine is has become the emperor. And if if I characterize him correctly, I mean he's not technically a Christian yet, but he's sympathetic. But he also realizes that Christianity has become huge in the empire, and maybe it's glue. He can use Christianity as social glue because the empire was divided. He has executed the emperor of the other side of the empire and joined it together. And he's, I think, exploring Christianity as a way to glue his empire back together again, to use alternative dispute resolution. And so he convenes this council to try and get it together. Now, if I'm really blunt, I think he leaned on the council a little bit. He wasn't a theologian but he leaned on the results so that what came out was kind of ecumenical, trying to blend them all together. Um, There was some people who were really hot-headed and wouldn't sign off, and because they wouldn't sign off, I think they got excommunicated. But within 18 months, he'd reached out and he'd tried to bring them back. Um, He famously converted on his deathbed, but I think that was just a final act. I think he was quite sympathetic to Christianity uh, long before that. And his presence there, I think, was recognized as, see, you guys will find an amicable solution. I think that's what was really going on. It's really interesting that part of Constantine's purpose was to unite the empire through this council. In your book, you point out that from the statements that came out of the council, it seems they followed the teachings of Tertullian, that God and Jesus Christ were one in substance rather than being, per se. But the Holy Ghost wasn't included in this creed. When did the Holy Ghost become a piece of that Trinity doctrine? It wasn't a piece of the Nicene Creed at all. Uh, That really only referred to God and Jesus Christ. The church after that is trying to work out how to fit the Holy Ghost into this this formulation that they've come up with. And it wasn't that hurried. The council extended over a few days, but maybe they did hurry. Maybe they were so focused on resolving the two that they didn't think of the third. The question of where does the Holy Ghost fits in seems to have come up as early as the Council of the Council of Sudica in three forty two AD. So, so that was what, seventeen years later? But the Holy Ghost is certainly a part of the reason why Christianity splits. That becomes the source of a great fissure, a great separation between the Eastern Church, the Orthodox churches as we now call them, and the Catholic churches which were further to the West because there was later a big argument whether the Holy Ghost and Jesus proceeded forth from the Father or whether they were sort of somehow co-equal and with him from the beginning. And so we get later creeds that are expressions of this idea that include the Holy Ghost. But they are almost an afterthought, and it's fascinating to me 
that the mainstream Christians who claim the Nicene Creed as their foundation and the differentiator of the more modern religions, as they might say, most of them haven't paid attention to that two versus three question. Hmm, yeah. So then as time progressed and more creeds were issued, you you discuss how the idea surrounding the Trinity and the nature of God himself evolved. If we fast forward to the Reformation, which saw a lot of theological change, we start hearing doctrines about God suggesting that he is without body parts or passions. Where did that come from? That without body parts or passions phrase, it's a Protestant phrase that comes out of the Reformation. And I think but this really, I think it really tracks to Thomas Cranmer, um, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury for King Henry VIII. And Henry VIII, even though we all think he was a liberal, libertine kind of a fellow because of his penchant for changing wives, um, he was absolutely conservative when it came to theology. And even though Thomas Cranmer tried to get him to join with the European Protestants after he broke with Rome over his divorce. He never would, and it wasn't until Edward, his son, became the king after Henry's death that Thomas started to get some of his own way theologically, but then that came to an abrupt end when he was executed by Queen Mary. But some of what he'd written about that was then picked up in the Westminster Confession of Faith that was written nearly 100 years later, 90 years after he wrote it. But um, it's almost so, so it's Anglican almost that without potty parts or passions expression. It's really interesting to hear how the doctrines that Christ taught about his nature and the nature of God evolved over time. You know, at the time that Joseph Smith, he went into the sacred grove to pray, like you pointed out in your book that almost all of Christendom believed in this, in this doctrine of the Trinity, um, or that God was without body, passion or parts. And you can really picture how confused he must have been about the doctrines that he was hearing from various preachers. In our church, we believe that through the vision that he received, the truths about the nature of God and Jesus Christ as separate beings who are united in purpose was restored. However, you argue that it's not entirely correct to say that Latter-day Saint theology is inconsistent with the Nicene Creed. Why is this? There are parts of our scriptures where there are some incredibly Trinitarian sort of things said. For example, when Abinadi was before King Noah, and you read, I think it's Messiah 15, the first one or three verses, there's a lot of Trinitarian language there. And when you read the testimony, the written testimony of the three witnesses, it ends with a completely Trinitarian statement. There are a number of places through Scripture, and the Doctrine and Covenants has more than anywhere else, and they're very Trinitarian in their expression. I like the quote that you included where Amulek is actually teaching Zeazram, and where he says, now Zeazram saith again unto him, is the Son of God, the very eternal Father. And Amulek said unto him, Yea, he is the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. It seems like from this example and others that you found in the Doctrine of Covenants that at times this kind of Trinitarian language is actually used to describe God and Jesus Christ, but it's not necessarily meant to be taken literally, which you argue is perhaps what Tertullian meant in his writings about the Father and the Son being one in substance, but not necessarily being. I'm not saying we are 
nothing more than a reform movement, that nothing could be further from the truth. I know what keys of priesthood are. We have more in common with other people of faith than we have that divides us. I like that when you wrote this book, your aim was really to acknowledge that, you know, along the way, some things have been muddied a little bit, but ultimately we should still be uniting as fellow Christians. You know, if we look at that, go back to that original Nicene Creed, it's often seen as a major point of division between Latter-day Saints and other Orthodox or Protestant traditions. But you state, I've got a quote here, that the Nicene Creed was formulated in broad terms consistent with Constantine's wish that it accommodate as many views of the underlying theology as it could. The leadership of Constantine at Nicaea was intended to enable unity rather than cries of heresy, apostasy, and other labels of human otherness. I guess it can really be seen as a symbol of unity for us now, for us Christians with varying beliefs. You suggest that the steps Constantine took to unify the church is something that would benefit the world today, because at the end of the day, at least within Christian circles, we all still believe in God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. I wanted to ask you, what can Constantine's vision, or his encompassing theological vision, teach modern Christianity? You've already said it in a summary way. I think our theology does not need to divide us. Even if we still want to disagree, we have so much more in common than separates us that it is just plain dumb. It's crazy for us to argue with people to the point where they can't be our friends. My friend Cole Durham at BYU talks about religion as social glue. It's a completely different context, but I like that idea that it's one of those institutions in society. It can be used proactively and positively and affirmatively to do good things, even if it isn't completely ad item on all the points of theology. We we have people who are good in their hearts and they want to do good stuff. There's actually another famous a sort of uniter of peoples that I want to quote an answer to that, and her name is Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and Love she it. Said, she said something somewhere once that just caught my breath when she said, I never met somebody that I didn't like once I knew them enough. The message that I have for Latter-day Saints when they talk with other people, if, if you find somebody that already goes to church and believes in God and you take the time to know them, you will find that you have 99% in common. You won't disagree with them about very much. My, my dear friends at at the, the School of Law in Sydney and the University of Notre Dame, Australia. I'll do anything for them, and I know they'll do anything for me. We just love each other, and it's wonderful. Yeah, there's you have so many you know great quotes in the book, but I think one, of, one good one to follow up on that is, religious liberty, tolerance, and respect coupled with the history outlined you know, that we've discussed today provide the framework from which greater unity among Christians can be found. Our human tendency to characterize those who we do not know as others can actually be separated from the truth claims that we make about each other's beliefs. Sometimes I think we do get a little bit uncomfortable when we meet people who don't exactly agree with everything. Um, but what I love about thinking about broader Christendom and faith in general is that there's a place for everybody and that God is willing to take 
all mankind, regardless of what form they might try and approach him in. They're all his children. You're right, Maddie. I mean, and I have some children that don't go to church anymore. Do, do I stop loving them? I keep loving them even if they don't talk to me and don't want to talk to me about those subjects. They're my children. They're my flesh and blood. And I just cannot imagine Heavenly Father as any different than that. Maybe I'm projecting. I suspect that I'm getting projected from him and that he's, of course, way better than me. But I have no doubt that he loves even some of the most unlovable people that this earth has ever produced. And he wishes without disrespecting their freedom of choice, that he could gently bring them home. The prodigal son is the story of every one of us. And and I think when all of Christianity shares that, and I read the Quran a couple of times, and I'm sure there's some flavor like that in there too. I mean, some people tell me that it's a violent book. It couldn't be anything further. That couldn't be further from the truth. I, I felt I felt the accommodation, the understanding in that. And to I want to say if we take the time to know our non-member friends, our friendships will deepen, will develop, will become beautiful. And I don't want us to disown those people if they don't join the church the first tenth or a hundredth time. I don't want you to feel like you have to ask them to actually get baptized to be their friend. I want you to be their friend. And I want them to know that it goes to the marrow of your bones, that your love for them and friendship. And I think I think that's what Jesus wanted when he talked to Joseph Smith and, and sort of hinted that there might be a church one day. He wanted him to have more love in his soul for other people. Thank you. Thanks so much. There's so much hope to be found from uniting together with other Christians and other faiths. And, um, you know, you do urge all Christians, regardless of what tradition they might come from, to emulate greater respect and inclusiveness for each other. And as we do that, we are able to become closer to God. And and that is ultimately what Heavenly Father wants us to be doing. It makes so much sense as to why you wanted to write a story, or not a story, but a, a, you know, a piece like this in context with all the work that you do with all these interfaith communities and just the wonderful people that you're brushing shoulders with each day to really just take away that pressure from us as Christians. We don't need to be so uh, wary of others who might seem a bit different to us. So I really appreciate you for bringing that insight today. Let's go to the final question then. This question relates to the title, which is Choosing Faith. With all your research, I know you're a bit of a scriptorian as well, you must have learned a lot intellectually, but spiritually, what does it mean to you now to choose faith? It isn't a hard choice to choose faith because if I don't choose faith, I'm going to end up being selfish. And I just know that isn't good for me. It's not good for our society. And I feel better. My wife says gratitude. If you feel gratitude, then you know you've got the Holy Ghost. You can taste it. I, I think that's why I choose faith, because when I do good things, I feel the Holy Ghost. I want to be good. I want to please Heavenly Father, but I want to feel good inside and know that I'm independently being a better person each day. That's my strive.
Thanks for joining the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed going on a bit of a history lesson. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or let me know what you think on Facebook or Instagram using the handle Choosing Faith. Till next time.